Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and today I'm joined by film and content specialist Cam Maitland and curator and film historian Alicia Fletcher. The gangster film is a genre that has a weird blip in its history. From the earliest years of cinema, we're talking like the 1900s, there have been movies about gangs and gangsters. Our two movies today both fall into this genre, but are both exceptional examples of it, as well as being atypical. Before we get into The Long Good Friday and Gloria, let's take a look at gangster films leading up to 1980, and why it's a genre that went from being incredibly popular in the 30s to almost completely dead until the 70s revival. Alicia, do you want to start us off? Yeah. I mean, the gangster film definitely goes back to the inception of cinema, which is something that keeps coming up in this podcast. (laughs) One might be surprised that we talk about 1895 and 1900 so often. Even going back to the early 1900s and some of the shortest films, gangs were on screen. It was was very much something Mm -hmm. that was sensationalized in the media. And so therefore, filmmakers uh, took a page from that. Once you get to the 20s, you get some of some incredibly glorious gangster films. Even thinking about something like Chicago, way before it's adapted by Bob Fosse, I mean, there's a 1927 silent version of Chicago, which is the story of Roxy Hart. It, in some ways, is certainly a gangster film. But probably the kind of urtext or the Bible for um, gangster films is Joseph von Sternberg's Underworld Mm. from 1927. And this is a couple of years before he would, you know, embark on his very famous partnership with Marlena Dietrich. But well before he was in Germany making films, he was, um, you know, in Hollywood making gangster related films. I mean, at least one. Actually, two. There's quite a few that are lost, unfortunately. Like Dragnet is another one, but it's considered one of the most like sought after lost films. Um, But Underworld features Evelyn Brent as the prototypical mob mall, which we're going to talk a lot about. And her character, you know, it's really the inception of the idea of a mob mall as um, with a heart of gold. Mm. Like they're not pure evil. They're not just gold diggers the way that they would become kind of in films like Scarface both the 80s version and the 30s version and the roaring 20s. <laughs> or like the and, casino and yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is this is Evelyn Brent playing a character named Feathers McCoy. Oh, man. Instantly. My favorite name <laughs> in the silent era like for a character. I am obsessed with Feathers McCoy. I encourage our listeners to Google Feathers McCoy. These are some of the most elaborate costumes ever shot. Um, and I see so much of Feathers actually in the two films that we are going to talk about today. You know, it's very hot in the late 20s. It's quite important for pre-code Hollywood, so 1930 to 1933, 34. And then once censorship, I mean, censorship's always there, but once they start enforcing censorship and enforcing the Hayes Code, um, there are gangster films, but they always have to punish uh, the anti-hero punish the gang warlord, which they do in in um, Howard Hawks's Scarface. Uh, so it, it's a different it's a different brand of um, gangster pictures. And then, as Cam always brings up, and I always love him talking about this, when the classical Hollywood era kind of collapses and um, you get into 1969, 1970, then of course we get a revival of gangster pictures because now you can have all the Corleones and all their glory. And yes, they are punished, but we also revel in them and you can get De Palma's Scarface and all the things you couldn't do uh, in the, you know, after 1934. And college walls will never be the same. That's <laughs> just all those, all those posters. Cam, do you have any favorites of this? What do you think? Well, I mean, I think that uh, the big one that for what we'll first discuss this week is Get Carter in 1971, which was really a groundbreaking film when it came to violence. Um, you know, it's Michael Caine playing a hard man 
just mowing down all his enemies. Uh, and it was considered pretty wild. And actually, it was a huge hit in the UK and pretty big in America mm-hmm. as well. Um, so this idea of violent gangsters, but I think you're right. The Godfather, obviously, currently uh, on Hollywood, is kind Sweet, of a correct? classic. I mean, a crazy <laughs> one that I don't love, but I think everyone should watch one. So this performance. Oh yeah, that one's the great. Super weird, <laughs> cursed Mick Jagger movie, which features Mick Jagger as a bit of a gangster. Oh uh, yeah, yeah. Currently on Hollywood Suite. I was yeah, I was just looking at random ones on Hollywood Suite. We have a Rage in Harlem by Bill Duke, yeah. which is very good. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that there's lots of kind of crazy and interesting weird ones out there and and i think it's always worth gangster movies tend to be pretty good <laughs> is the thing like they just have a base and i think it will get into it with gloria actually where i think even cassavetes kind of has a love-hate relationship with that movie but he's like you know it's got something <laughs> it keeps the plot moving love streams and, is kind uh, of a gangster yeah. film the one that i'm thinking of is machine gun mccain which is, I believe, an Italian co-production where he plays this ruthless gangster. Um, and, of course, Jenna Rollins does show up in this incredible characterization. But, um, yeah, I, I love that there's multiple entry points to Cassavetes and gangster films because I don't know if people are Murder of a Chinese Bookie has got that, too, right? Like that's, Yeah, that's, kill, that's the killing too, yeah. of a Chinese Bookie. Yeah, yeah, I think that's so. That's it. Thank you. I think he knew how to write it, at least. I, I, a weird one we looked up, I, I think, when we were looking through 1975, I don't know if you ever watched it, Alicia, but the the Ben Gazzara Al Capone movie was kind of fun. You watched it. Um, I wanted to see it. You really liked it. It's Canadian, correct? Yeah, yeah I really yeah. want to see it. It was it was interesting. It's got Al, uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone in a small mm-hmm. part. It, it's not great, but obviously Ben Gazzara's Al Capone is like tough to God, to turn your yeah, your nose yeah. up at. You know, why do you think we watch these movies to simultaneously cheer for and watch these people do heinous things and then maybe fall down? Like, what? What? Why do we like these? Why are they so enduring? Because we're bad people. Yeah, they get to do what you <laughs> want to do. You know. Um, yeah. Well, I, I mean, a lot of these are just rampage movies, basically. Even The Godfather is mostly about a very successful rampage at the end. Uh, so, yeah, it's like guys pulling off something. And that's I think that's especially the 70s ones. It tends to be either... I mean, it's either the hopelessness of the 70s where everyone gets gunned down or it's a bad guy winning because he's outsmarts everybody. It's also just the drive to capitalism. Mm. Like it's at its most extreme, right? Of consolidating power, massive takeovers. Like this isn't that different. These films are that not that different than like a film like Wall Street. Sure. Um, and that's why you get sometimes films that do, and certainly one we're going to talk about today is you know about a gangster who tries to go legit. Mm. And in reality, you just historically that did happen in America's oh, history. Yeah. If you look at the Kennedys, if you look at a ton, I, well, someone's going to come after me for that. Really. Yeah. Just if you really look <laughs> at it. upside down in the Chavakitic. <laughs> I'm going to be hung from an abattoir by yeah. a meat hook. It's yeah. going to suck. But, um, you know, that, that drive to capitalism is the American dream. And that's why I think a film like Scarface, both the 30s version and um, Brian De Palma's from 83, really is just encapsulating the American dream. And I mm. think that's why it's both grotesque and highly recognizable and appealing to the average viewer. I guess that moves it into our first movie today. So when researching the podcast, we usually do our best to read interviews and articles as close to the film's release date as possible. The reason being is that memory is fallible. So directors, producers, writers, and actors may say one thing is true when the movie is released in 1980, but remember the incident totally differently in, let's say, 2005. Writer Barry Keefe claimed in an interview in the 2000s that he was inspired to write The Long Good Friday when he, quote, took a Saturday morning drive around the East End, looking at Docklands and that hideous memorial to Thatcherism, Canary Wharf. Uh, I hate Docklands. The first seeds of the story came from that anger. However, the first draft was written in 79, four weeks before Thatcher was elected, and Canary Wharf uh, wasn't built until five years after the movie was released. Regardless, The Long Good Friday is an unbelievable time capsule of the UK in 7980, as well as a still fresh and shocking gangster movie that was set up to be terrorism meets gangsterism. I really liked this one. I can't wait to watch it again. Uh, let's get into it. Cam, there will be spoilers, but yeah. the plot, here we go. Yeah, this is, a, as well as being a gangster movie, it's kind of a mystery movie. Uh, and I actually think one of the things I love is it leaves some of the mystery on the table because he kind of fucks up his investigation partway through. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I so basically the plot is that uh, 
Bob Hoskins plays Harold, a gangster who's just returned back from the U.S. Uh, to kind of see his holdings. He has this big deal to sell a part of the wharf to kind of develop it with casinos and things like that. Uh, and some American gangsters are in town to oversee this deal. And just as this is happening, uh, his closest associate is murdered. A car bomb attempts to blow up his mother, and a third bomb is found in one of his casinos. Uh, he knows and that they someone... blow up his favorite pub. Yes, they, well, that happens a little later, but yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, um, they, uh, yeah, so he knows somebody's coming for him. And uh, quickly, he also, essentially, the Americans also make a demand that he has 24 hours to essentially get this under control. Um, and it's you're essentially seeing a guy who is, like you say, he's kind of tried to go legit. He's still a, a, an East Ender, a hard man, a, a bloke. Uh, but uh, he tries to subtly work his way around and then eventually just gets pushed and pushed and pushed until he becomes an incredibly brutally violent uh, murderer. And as we realize uh, what's happened is there's been, uh, they've crossed the IRA who is uh, fighting against them. And uh, yeah, so it becomes this thing where everyone is kind of telling him to stop or, you know, work subtly. Uh, and he has no yeah. interest in that. <laughs> or even just slow down, take a day yeah. of a breather. But if if the Americans and the lead American gangster is played by Addie Constantine, which, um, you know, French-American actor who a lot of people recognize from Godard films, he's so great. This is total stunt casting. It's so great. But um if they he he knows that if they find out how he doesn't have a tight hold on you know the underworld that they will pull out of the deal so he's at first kind of trying to lie and hide it um and this is where one of the most luminous characters in the whole film which is Helen Mirren playing his um it's she's not his mistress she's absolutely his partner his wife, like in other yeah. films yes. it's a mob mall is considered a mistress but and i don't think they're married but like this is totally an acknowledged partnership uh, mm -hmm. she plays victoria with a lot of class and dignity and uh, she's intelligent and classy and really helps them and she kind of has to swoop in to smooth things over and uh these two sort of divide and conquer to well well we won't spoil how it ends but you know it's either going <laughs> to yeah. work or it's not basically yes and i think that there, like i said there's a lot of threads that are kind of left dangling including one that i think is potentially she was a part of some of this machination to maybe oust Bob Hoskins. Oh, um, I didn't read that. That's I didn't read know. that uh, at all. Because yeah. her and Jeff, you know, Jeff is flirting with her all the no, time. No, no, no. She pushes him away. I think, no, she's trying to get it out of Jeff. Mm, I don't know. She doesn't push him away enough. I want to lick every inch of you. Saved by the bell. Good night. No, no, I think she's that's her totally him. playing the line. She's baiting, she's baiting him. him. I'm I'm with Alicia on this yeah. one. I think well, yeah. But I mean that's that what's way, but, but that's what's so great about this movie is there's so much to talk about and be like, oh, is that what's going on? Is this because like you said, there's so many threads and there's still so much mystery surrounding it that you're like, okay, how do I how do I follow this? And I think that's what keeps it still fresh and something that we can still talk about is like there's just so much to to dig into. Yeah, I think there is. I'll I'll admit I'm not great with. British history so um or like it's not even history it's just nuances so a lot of the the IRA stuff it's not in my lifetime I mean it would become but like this is an era that I didn't live through so I, I don't recognize the headlines about IRA the IRA and terrorism but also it's a very specific context in the United Kingdom that we kind of I think um are still wrapping our heads around in North America, like just how much of a threat the IRA was, just how many terrorist attacks there were. The other thing he's trying to do with this dock lens, and the reason it's so pivotal is the um, London's getting the 1988 Olympics. So he knows, I mean, I don't know if it had been announced, but he's, he's corrupt enough to know that if he buys that land cheap in 1979, 1980, they're going to need to start building stadiums and things like that. And um, the, just that idea that London is, you know, under a terrorist threat, but trying to host the largest international <laughs> event mm -hmm. like in the world is is an interesting um, point. Yeah. Well, we should get into how this movie almost didn't get a release and almost bombed because it was seen as pro IRA. Cam, do you well, want to talk a bit bombed. about that? Am I right, guys? Yeah. Good joke. Yeah, uh, but uh, um, pun intended. Very nice. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, what what you need to know about where the troubles were at. 
when you when you talk about the troubles, obviously you're talking about something that technically stretches back to the 1600s. But the capital T troubles are kind of 1969 to the late 1990s. Uh, so where we're at is pretty bad. Uh, yeah. Not quite the height of them, but around the height of them. Uh, because uh, 1972 is Bloody Sunday. If you're unfamiliar, that's when uh, a bunch of unarmed protesters were shot down by British troops, uh, which essentially created a fairly permanent schism between the British troops and uh, the various Northern Irish factions uh, who disagreed with them. Uh, And yeah, we're heading into uh, the problem in the late 70s, early 80s is uh, with uh, political prisoners. Uh, The stuff you guys will probably know is Bobby Sands uh, and the hunger strikes happened in 1981. That's Uh, the movie that Steve McQueen made, right? Shame. Yes. Yeah. Or uh, there's a a few movies of it. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Or that's actually uh, Hunger is the movie. Hunger, uh, sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah. Fastbender is also in shame. Totally yeah. different movie yeah. about a sex addict. Yes. Apologies to listeners. McQueen's movie also involves the Dirty Strikes, which I think are around 79, which is when they were using their poop on the walls. Um, mm. wow. Yeah. So anyway, that what you need to know is essentially p- p- political prisoners were being... Uh, arrested and imprisoned without trial because they decided that trials were too dangerous for juries. Um, so it was this crazy... I mean, that's a, a lot of bullshit there. Yeah, they essentially yeah. took away their citizenship. It's pretty yeah. wild. Um, yeah. And what we were heading into and what makes this movie, I think, stand out a lot is Thatcher's policies are often, I think, compared to Harold. Harold uh, thought that if he just kept coming up against the RA with more and more force, mm-hmm. that they would stop. Um, but it's also the difference between, again, somebody that just wants money and power and, and people who have an ideology. <laughs> they're not going to stop. Yeah, they're fine. Uh, but they lives. straight up say that they straight up say that in the movie. Yes. They're like, you can't just come after these guys. They are yeah. fanatics. And, I mean, <laughs> like, they, they, and there's going to be more of them. Yeah. The, the thing is, is like he he thinks he takes out the head guy, but there's no head guy. They all yeah. believe the same thing. One so, of those guys uh, is Pierce yeah. Brosnan in his first yes. role. And I think he only has one word of, of dialogue mm. and it's. Hi. But yes. uh, he's very menacing and very good in this as mm. this silent assassin um, who's really opens the film and closes the film. And it's it's I think he's like he's got to be in his 20s. He's so young in this. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Straight up, baby. It's uh, it's interesting to see the IRA stuff as because um, now, yeah, like you said, North America hasn't really gotten our heads around like, well, how bad could it have possibly been? Mm. And it was real bad. It's kind of like um, even in Canada, we don't really have an idea of how bad the FLQ crisis was. And it's like True. it was bad. Yes. But the, like the IRA is like whole. And this is also very zone. comparable to the kind of crappy handling of the FLQ crisis where they were just renditioning citizens for no reason and stuff like that. Yeah. So, yes. So this is a, it's a very hot button issue and it's very, yeah. So this film was created and then Lou Grade bought it and then Lou Grade got a little worried and immediately was like, well, put it on TV. And then he got too worried for TV uh, and they made an edit of it that apparently cut it down to like 75 minutes. Yeah, it which, took out all the violence, like all yeah. the best, quite frankly, the best stuff. And the stuff that makes Harold terrifying, like the stuff that you're like... You just can't excise the fact that he's fighting the IRA. That's like the point of the movie. So yeah. it's impossible to imagine a version uh, where that would happen. And also on top of that, they tried to redub Bob Hoskins' voice, which... Yeah, uh, which is wild. He, very Cockney. I mean, we all know Bob Hoskins yeah. from Roger Rabbit, but I mean, this is like... This is a film that in some ways does benefit from subtitles. Um, I think his mm. voice is incredible, <laughs> but I there are a few things, and there's just the nuance of his, of his dialogue. But sorry, continue, yes. Cam. Uh, oh, he, no, and he I, sued I, them, I was right? just going to say, yeah, he sued the He was going to sue them with the backing of Alec Guinness, Richard Burton, and Warren Beatty to keep his voice. I mean, that's voice. some backing. That's pretty good. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> before this all kind of came to a head, he met Eric Idle at a party and just described the situation. And Eric Idle got him a... a time with George Harrison who ran handmade films uh, and George Harrison just bought the whole movie having and, not uh, seen ran it. with it yeah because he yeah. did the same uh, Bob Hoskins knew he did the same thing with the life of Brian uh, which was having trouble being distributed for the same kind of like people were afraid it would cause too Blasphemy. much controversy yeah and I think that made a ton of money too and I'm sure oh, this tons. probably did all right so yeah. uh, I think he knew what he was doing <laughs> yeah yeah but then after watching it when he finally saw it he was like oh I did not realize it was this violent and I yeah. would not have bought it and distributed had I not it is a weird one for handmade films to be fair it's so violent i mean one of the most famous there's so many famous scenes in Mm -hmm. this film i realize but the abattoir sequence where um harold shand hoskins character 
takes some rival, like, people he suspects might be behind these bombings and out to get him, rival, you know, mobsters, and hangs them from meat hooks upside down in abattoir and then, like, interrogates them. Um, It's actually, like, such a religious scene. We see images of crucifixion, like someone actually with their hands nailed to the floor. I mean, this is, this is, and it's called The Long Good Friday. This takes place mm. on Easter Friday. It will forever be what I watch on Easter now. <laughs> this will be a once-a-year screening for me for sure. It's like one of the greatest Easter films. Um, <laughs> I like how holiday-centric your film viewing yeah. is. You're like, I got my Christmas movies that ruin it. Now I have my mm. Easter movies that mm-hmm. ruin it. <laughs> yeah, I like Great. ruining holidays, except for Halloween. Perfect. <laughs> um, but it makes sense. And a lot of his his almost like soliloquies like these, they are said to characters, but they, they might as well be to himself. They're so, um, I don't want to say poetic, because there's at one point he's, he's lamenting a friend that's been killed, someone that he was in the army with as a teenager. It's one of the early killings, uh, his friend Colin. And they need to hide the fact that he's been killed because they don't want the American gangsters to find out that there's been attacks on his gang. So he has the, the body picked up um, in an ice cream truck instead of, you know, like an ambulance or, you know, with a morgue. And he says... There's a lot of dignity in that, isn't there? Going out like a raspberry ripple. Which apparently was uh, completely improvised, or the line was something different, like having to do with chocolate ice cream. And it was Hoskins who was like, no, raspberry ripple kind of summarizes how they were feeling at the moment. And it's just like, I don't know, I just, I'm obsessed with this character now of Harold Shand. Um, It is remarkable. It's a remarkable feat because he has emotions. He's able to cry because his friend has died. He's got a complicated relationship with victoria he's mm-hmm. cruel to her but also there is this dependency on her that is is un unique i think in gangster films um and then he's you know capable of brutal brutal violence um and it's a it's an empire that he runs without any use of narcotics which i found really interesting it makes it kind of unique that way where i'm not entirely understanding what his i mean he's trying to go legitimate alcohol and protection it's uh, yeah. so he's based uh, okay. on the craze and the craze if people are familiar with that name they were twins um reggie and ronald and apparently reggie actually wrote a fan letter to bob hoskins and these two were like they ran the east end and but not for it's drugs interesting not no, for drugs no. it was for protection that's often and a it thing was in british alcohol. gangster movies weirdly right. it's yeah. quite often i think it was the jamaican immigrants that did the drugs well, and that's in this where he's in a neighborhood that is predominantly black. He's very racist. And yes. the yeah. filmmaker, John McKenzie, doesn't shy away. I mean, he says maybe the worst stuff about the Irish, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it's um, it is interesting. It's just, it's just this is such a nuanced film. I it was it packed a real wallop yeah. for me. And you get an early role by Paul Barber uh, from mm-hmm. uh, the, the Full Monty as mm-hmm. yes. one of their gangsters who is black, which is great. It is interesting also to see how many of these character actors uh, obviously deliberately show up in Guy Ritchie movies later mm-hmm. in more yeah. prominent parts. Like there's, oh, yeah. it's I, obvious. I why. think in a lot of ways, this is kind of the defining British gangster movie until Guy Ritchie Absolutely. comes along. Yeah. And, and he's obviously hugely inspired by it as well. Uh, he takes a little more fun in it. But I think that this movie inspires so much like The Sopranos, for instance. I think oh, yeah. the psychology of this character is what's so important and the fact that he can't quite control his anger. And yeah, what I was like... Just he can't interrogate Jeff without accidentally killing Jeff, essentially. Yeah, with a glass. One of the things I love so much about this is how complicated it gets because it's like, well, he he can't control the IRA, the IRA obviously, mm. but he also can't control his own people because he didn't know his own people were working for the IRA, let alone fucking them over. Well, because so I think that's what's so fascinating. About he's it. too busy trying to jump classes, right? Like a lot of this film takes it's place Avon on Avon Barksdale Stringer Bell. Like it's The Wire yeah, too, right? Yeah. I think that they put enough stuff that Jeff was fully trying to do a takeover because oh, they yeah. they see that Jeff hated Colin because Colin was gay. They see all this weird stuff that I think, I think that Thank maybe right. Jeff made that deal go south on purpose, but even he didn't realize how intensely the IRA <laughs> yeah, was Yeah, and this is, this is all happening while Hoskins is drinking champagne on his exquisite yacht that's, mm-hmm. you know, permanently docked in the harbor like he really is and he's you know the way he dresses the way victoria dresses this is someone trying to climb the corporate ladder 
and wash his hands of his prior deeds and you can't like yeah. they go they yeah. go hand in hand and he also like i like that he he calls it out like essentially that like he like being a self-made man he is not like a fancy guy gangster he obviously like beat his way to the top and he calls out the hypocrisy of the american gangsters that they're like <laughs> turned off by bloodshed and he's like you're gangsters like what are you talking about <laughs> this mm-hmm. is uh this is what your business is yeah they don't uh, want I, messiness I like that. Yeah. 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 Well, I want to talk about how the script came to be because you mentioned earlier that like everybody kind of contributed. And this, I think, would not have been a great as great had they not had all the various contributions. So we mentioned it was written by Barry Keefe, who was, I believe it's pronounced Keefe and not mm-hmm. Keffy or Keefe. It started out as like, like a TV movie and there really wasn't a lot to it. And they approached Bob Hoskins first. And apparently he was suffering from a tapeworm, which he had gotten mm-hmm. in Zulu Dawn. And so he was out of commission, which is why he had time to like take this on and develop it. And when he saw the script, he He's like, I like the idea of this, but you got to bulk, bulk this up. And I think this is what it's missing. So he gave him all that complicated stuff of like, he's a gangster trying to go straight, but everything's going wrong. So this is happening. And then it gets into the hands of Helen Mirren, who was like a darling of the stage at that time, huge mm-hmm. in the Royal Shakespeare Company, but had done like really no film at that she point. She did Camelot. That was it though. Like okay. really but Camelot, yeah, Camelot really huge. Yeah, yeah. A televised version. Yeah, yeah. But like a televised oh, version yeah. of like uh, Taming of the Shrew. Her, like, stuff her like thing that, is right? really that it was... Um... That she's so sexy, I think, is the real problem. They kept trying to cast her in stuff like Age of Consent and, like, yeah. uh, you know, the hussy. <laughs> and and rarely in, like, real legit roles. This... Like, she was really trying to control her brand way before you really did that in sure. the 70s as a woman. I mean, she she's did in a good job. Caligula, yeah, she's great in Caligula. Oh my god, yeah, the best part of Caligula, one might yeah. say. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, so she, so she, then she got a hold of it and took one look and said, "I'm not touching this with a ten foot pole unless you completely revamp my character." Because before then, they had the character being like the cute, meek little mall who you know was there and had very few lines and um, you know was just kind of floating around. And she was also like really low class. And she's like, "No, what's interesting is you if you make this a middle class woman gunning to be high class, but she's just as dirty." as he is, but they're partners. And I, I can't think really of any other gangster movie that makes them pure partners. Can you guys? I mean, not hmm. not before this, necessarily. Every once in a while, I think you get, like, a femme fatale who's a bit more in control than you realize. Yeah, that's like, like where like, the silent era was very yeah. firmly, like, with the racket like, mm-hmm. and... Mm-hmm. non-tragic um lady Macbethy kind of stuff yeah, right yeah, where yeah. they're like yeah i think force. that that's yeah. kind of the character that is the closest but yeah I, I think especially if you compare this to uh the godfather where the women are just shut out mm-hmm. uh, yeah. this is a lot better well and you watch him break down and you watch her support him and like mm-hmm. i cannot think of another scene where you see a gangster vulnerable about the actions he's done with the exception of maybe tony soprano and there's no way that if they hadn't pulled this off so flawlessly, that last scene, which we're not going to spoil for listeners, you wouldn't have the import and the, just the terror of that last scene if you didn't, Mm. hadn't built the relationship between them to be a partnership. And then you see them pulled apart. And that is, that is actually for me where I just was like, my heart was pounding so fast watching the last um, two minutes of the film, which are incredibly famous. And I just also want to shout out a fun kind of 80s thing is the Francis Monkman score, which is so good. crazy oh, yeah. synth. So good. He's a prog rock guy. And it you almost get sounded like Jalo. There were moments where yeah, I was like, this yeah, sounds like a Jalo totally. It's very, just kind of a wild synth score. So for a movie that is 1980, you get that real nice 80s feel. Yeah, I agree. And I think that's what really makes that last uh, that last scene work is the fact that the score just takes off and you are I can only begin to imagine watching that in a theater. And this is one I actually would really like to see in a theater for the levels of the levels of violence. That explosion of the pub, I'm sure, is so cool on the big screen. What about the shower scene on the big screen? Okay, Cam, you have the most beautiful review of this because uh, <laughs> you you were just like this stops and becomes bear porn yeah. for a moment, mm-hmm. and you are not wrong because when I was watching it, I had the same feeling of like, why am I watching a montage of Bob Hoskins in the shower? And yeah. he's sad, so I appreciate seeing him sad, but like, yeah, it's it's weird. He was a very unlikely 
movie star. Let's just yeah. say. But I love him <laughs> like so Gene dearly. Hackman. The other yes. thing that's fascinating is like he was on the up, but he was on the up because of the original version of Pennies from Heaven. Yeah, the TV show. Which is like a very different where he's like a warm, cuddly uh, romance yeah. kind of guy. Yeah. That's so fascinating. I don't know. This this whole movie, if you haven't seen this one, please. And, and gangster stuff is like your thing, go watch it. It's really one of the most remarkable and examples. And then eight of years life. later he's in Roger Rabbit. <laughs> Roger Rabbit <laughs> yeah. and which, changed all our childhoods. Totally sets this up because he's that it's that gruff thing but then you just turn that attitude sure. to good and you give him the rabbit instead of the IRA and you know yeah, it's just as wacky. His best friend is also killed. It's There's like... a lot of terrorists in Roger Rabbit if sure. you think about yeah, it. Yeah. And That's a femme right. fatale. And it's mm-hmm. all about city development. <laughs> it's all about city development, Becky. These are similar films. Oh, I'm I'm watching. I'm hearing. I'm watching. Zemeckis is right there. <laughs> yes. All right. When we come back, we're going to be looking at more Cassavetes. But don't worry, Jenna Rollins is going to get a lot to do, as well as a very controversial performance from a small child. We're going to get into it. That's coming up after the break. Last week, we looked at Cassavetes in the 70s and the experimental nature of his movies when it came to acting. Today, we're looking at what is quite possibly his most commercial venture. It also garnered Jenna Rollins an Oscar nom for her role as a hard-boiled mall. I think it might be that I just like saying the word mall. I'm probably going to say it more this episode. It was also a movie that almost didn't get made by Cassavetes, but thanks to Jenna, we have one of her best performances in an embarrassment of riches for performances. It's Gloria. Let's go, Alicia. Yeah, this is a film about um, Gloria Gloria Swenson. So it sounds like Gloria Swanson, and I think it's very clear that they're playing off of that, who is um, kind of a retired mob mall, I would say. Like, she's been... You know, in her past, she's been the girlfriend of um, a very powerful Italian uh, gangster. But she's living on her own. She she likes fine things, even though she lives in a, lives in a very shitty apartment. But she wears gorgeous uh, Manuel Angaro clothing, and she saves some money and she lives her life the way she wants to. Um, she, through circumstances that are insane, gets wrapped up in a murder. Um, there is played by uh, Buck Henry. There is a, an accountant for the mafia that she's related to um, who is informing to the FBI. And so he and his whole family is marked, his wife, his two children, his mother-in-law. And they live in the same apartment building as Gloria. She just comes over for to borrow some coffee, I believe. <laughs> yeah. It's something... Yeah, coffee. like it is coffee. It's I'm coffee. All out of coffee. Um, and you know, minutes before the gang—I mean, gangsters are already in the building. Minutes before this family is brutally gunned down, luckily they get the son to her apartment, and she hides him. The son also—he's only six. Um, this is a, a little boy who is, um, I think, presumably half Puerto Rican, half mm-hmm. um, white. Uh, he, his father, entrusts him with essentially the books—the books that would. Um, Absolutely, the FBI would love to have their hands on that outline all of the financials to the mafia. And she has to go on the run with him. They live in the Bronx. Um, you know, we're talking a lot about New York and film, especially this year as we've rounded the 20th anniversary of September, the September 11th terrorist attacks. Um, and this is an interesting example of New York on film because it is the grittiest New York. It's the real New York yeah. of apartments that would never be on the show Friends. <laughs> like, truly. Um, and so we're seeing the Bronx in all of its glory in, in 1980. Uh, and she is constantly on the run. There is almost, it feels like every space she's in, every coffee shop, every bar, every restaurant, every apartment there is someone related to this mobster who spots her. <laughs> yeah. And so she's wearing heels the whole time. And I love that she says, my feet are going to fall off all the time because that is realistic. <laughs> you cannot run in yeah. heels like that for as long as she does without exquisite pain. She's running with this little six-year-old. She doesn't like kids. She doesn't yeah. want him. but And she does try to get rid of him when she realizes the implications. But instead, a car with four, four gangsters pulls up. You got that book, kid? Come here. Frank, what are you going to do? Shoot a six-year-old Puerto Rican kid on the street? She gets out her gun and shoots the car (laughs) down, and the whole film turns from there. And it's such an iconic Jenna Rowland's performance. It's a very iconic poster. You see this, you know, you see her aiming a gun in three different angles, which is um, a very, is used on the poster, and it's this scene. And the scene, the first time I saw it, made my jaw drop. Uh, She's hardened. She's seen it all she's been to prison 
and she's going to protect this little boy. And they have, I would say, a complicated relationship because he doesn't, he understands his family is gone. Um, he actually hears them gunned down. But how do you explain that to a six-year-old? Um, and so he... Who, who's as fucked up as this kid is. This kid's yeah. a mess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think he's probably average for 1980s. <laughs> for, also but, average um, for somebody whose family gets gunned down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so it's really on the run and she has to protect him. It's, it's a cliched story. It really is. And it was meant to be, um, it was a spec script that Cassavetes, he was just going to sell it. He just wrote it. it. He thought it was shit. He was going to sell it. It was originally going to be cast uh, with Barbara Streisand in the lead. She turned it down. I don't even understand if this was like over dinner or something, but Jenna was like, no, this is my role. And once she got cast, that's when they convinced Cassavetes to direct it as well. He really had no intention. He's never spoken super well of this film. No. Um, In a but... wild way, I think, because it's like, it's, listen, I'm, I'm going to take some issues with it, but I still yes. think it's a great movie. I still think if you're interested in like starting a starting point for Cassavetes, it's a great one because it's yeah. a fun action movie that has a lot of his touches in it. So it's like, it's weird that he speaks so poorly of this movie. Well, especially because it's such a huge thing for Jenna Rollins, who yes. he was so admirous of her acting. Amazing. And she's amazing. Yes. Yeah, she's Pro- so good. Probably her greatest performance. Yeah. 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 She's nominated for an Oscar. She loses to Sissy Spacek for Coal Miner's Daughter. Um, this is her second Oscar nomination. Of course, a woman um, under the influence was the first one in 74. I do want to say, knowing a little bit about the biography of John Cassavetes, this is a really bad part in his life. Like, Mm. this is uh, not a good time for him. We talked in the previous episode about Minion Moskowitz in 1971. And there are, of course, hits after that, like um, Opening Night in 1977. But he really struggles with studios. Like, he really could not work well with studios. And the idea that he was doing this for Columbia is a bad spell. But I think to your point, Cam, and I have criticisms of this film too, but I ultimately love it. Um, this is this is nuanced. This is a cliched story that he somehow imbues with um, comedy, even though it's so dark. Yeah. And I don't care what you say, watching Jenna Rollins in this is transformative. Uh, she, you know, and like you say, Becky, embarrassment of riches. She's just, she is Gloria. Like, that's just her. And I mm-hmm. I know she never came out of character in between takes so she can maintain that relationship with the little boy who, of course, was a non-actor. But I, I watch this frequently because of her and I just, and because of New York. It's really amazing. I think one of my favorite things about this movie is that it shows Cassavetti, um, at a, at a way that he's trying to become accessible. So he takes what makes him great and pulls back on it so it's easier to get to. And one of the things we talked about in Moskowitz and, of course, Faces, is that he really focuses on his actors in close-ups. You see all the thoughts move and everything. Here you get it in very specific moments. Like, the for example, when the two of them are in the back of the taxi cab and you see her trying to get the kid on her side and he's, he focuses very quickly on her as she's trying to convince him and then you watch her make him laugh and you see his his head work and I I really love that moment I think it's Cassavetes and what Cassavetes does pulled back in the and used to the best possible effect I think he also uses spaces really well in this and you know if you think about a woman under the influence or even Minnie Moskowitz to some extent it mostly takes place in apartments and this film has those apartments too but it also has just run down New York bars um, you know train stations it's one of the only times I can think of Cassavetti's where you don't get a lot of claustrophobia except for the probably dingy hotel rooms that the, they have to hide out in. But you're seeing these wide vistas of New York and that's really rare for him. And I really felt like I was breathing the air that those two characters were breathing. Whereas when I watch other Cassavetes, I'm probably having a panic attack and want to crawl into the closet in the room <laughs> that the film takes place in. I think the one thing that's wild about this is that like there was actual gangsters involved in this and then Cassavetti got into a fight with one of them on what would actually happen in the moment. Now, there's no actual clarification on what happened, but it's supposedly it's at the end when she's confronting the gangster and she runs out and it's the bodyguard. He used to be an actual hitman for the mob and she shoots him as she's running out and he was like, it wouldn't go down like that. And they got into a whole fight on whether or not that scene would go down that way. And that's fair. That's fascinating. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah. that's true. They would have frisked her figure out that there was a gun in her purse that makes perfect sense to me it's not really about that right it it really is about this Mm, relationship it's much more 
stagey in that way. Just an action movie, yeah. There's a great quote I have from Cassavetes about why the gangsters weren't better organized, which is a criticism of this film, which I consider gangsters to be the same as regular people. The only difference is that they're willing to kill somebody. I don't consider gangsters anything more than than that, except for they have a deeper limit of what the tolerance of the human, human spirit will allow. And I don't think they're smarter than anybody else. I don't think they're smarter than I am. Yeah, they also underestimate her. No one would assume that she would take on this mm. violence and she shoots multiple people in yeah. restaurants oh, I mean, and, and even, without even, even the gangster about makes it. fun of it. He's like, you got like, what are you doing, Gloria? <laughs> yeah. Every time someone talks to you, you shoot them. And like, and no like, one would no. expect that of a retired mob yes. mall who's taking on oh, a kid yeah. who she's never, I mean, I guess she's met him before, but it's her, you know, her dead friend's yeah. son. She has no vested interest in yeah. this child's life. It just doesn't make sense. But Cassavetes felt that, you know, I can't remember if he said this explicitly, but all women are mothers. Like whether they are have had children or not, there is. Something I mean, they, in they there. say it in the, that's the gangster says that. One. Oh, it's the gangster yeah, saying yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's actually yeah, Cassavetti yeah. said it too. Yeah. <laughs> yes, but no. I mean, I what would assume he wrote it into his script. Yeah. And you know, for an action film, for a gangster film, this tied um, at Venice for the Golden Lion. With, of all films, Louis Mal's Atlantic City, which mm. is a very similar film. Yes. <laughs> like it's, yeah. It's it's really remarkable that these this 1980 has this um, sort of burned out gangster subgenre. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's it really, I can't think of another year where there's that many films about it or a year where this would win awards um, over other Cassavetes films. Because we were looking at 71 and 80, and these are both like turns of the decade. And it seems like turns of the decade movies always have a sense of exhaustion to them. Mm. (laughs) It's always like, okay, we got through that one. Let's get on to the next one. And there's a bit of a like review of what came before them. And Gloria is exhausted. And that's one of the things that's so great about her character. She's so tired. And that's partially why she doesn't want to do this. She's so tired. And she's clearly paid her dues. You know, as an actress, though, she wasn't tired. She was Probably at her height now, Cassavetes, though, was tired, just tired <laughs> and sick. And um, his dad just died. His like dad, his dad died, died a few like weeks. A, yeah, his dad started. died while yeah. he was writing the screenplay. And then, or his dad was sick while he was writing the screenplay and then dies three weeks before um, production starts. So, you know, and I think at this point, his drinking is, is quite um, yeah. detrimental. <laughs> so, I mean, it's interesting knowing that we always talk about Cassavetes and Rollins um, because of their marriage and their shared children and their shared work, but like they're in very different places despite being a family unit, which I find very interesting in this film. Um, and I I know when I read interviews with Cassavetes about this film, and he speaks of it kind of negatively, he does not speak negatively of Rollins' work mm-hmm. in this film. Like he did it for yeah. her, let's be yeah, honest. Yeah. Like he yeah. wouldn't have done it otherwise. But you can see why she wanted to do this. Of like course. there were no roles for women like this. And it's interesting when you when you see the TV series and you look like there's a lot about um Private Benjamin and Nine to Five. Mm-hmm. And like these are things that women were starting to produce some of their own stuff that of course would go away. But like that was uh Goldie Hawn and uh, Jane Fonda finally getting together and going, There's nothing for us, let's make stuff that'll work for us and produce stuff for other people, which is a really interesting thing about nineteen eighty in general. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And you also get roles even something like Susan Sarandon in Atlantic City, which is going to be discussed um, on the show, the television version, uh, you know, that's a very unique role as well. Um, Yeah, and there's something about 1980, I would say, and this doesn't apply so much to Fonda and to Goldie Hawn, where we are seeing um, ageism kind of fade away a little bit. Like you can cast Burt Lancaster, who's well into his 70s in an action role in Atlantic City. And I mean, Mm -hmm. Jenna... I mean, she's, I think, 50 in this. Um, she looks, yeah. yeah, one of the most stunning women in the history of, I don't know, women, if that's a history. Statuesque, but, uh, Amazonian uh, statuesque. Yeah, but, yes. um, you know, she, not a lot of roles for 50-year-olds, let's be honest. Um, yeah. And so this is where, it's a year where I think you're seeing a lot of, uh, you know, roles go to women that would have otherwise had to step down. Yeah, and I think it's, again, like what we talked about in 71, where, they, the, the 80s stars had not yet taken over, right? True. I, I mean, yeah. I guess Goldie kind of continued, but uh, yeah. The, uh, I, and the Brat get, Pack's not there. Yeah, like, yeah. no, Tom Cruise isn't yeah. there. They'll they'll get there eventually, but uh, 1980, it's kind of a wide open playing field to figure out who's who. Yeah, and this, you know, she is 
a classic actress from the 1950s. You know, she was coming up through television and that's how she met John. And it's interesting to see her because at this point she's in the third decade of her career. Um, and to do a role like this with so much action and a role that is so physical, not just the shooting and the running, but just handling the little boy. And sure. there's a scene, you know, the scene I'm talking about where she shoots four gangsters in a car. <laughs> you know, he's holding on to her for dear life and she's trying to basically kick him off her. And, you know, that scene, I think it's a long take. It's it's pretty incredible. Um it's just such a physical role, and she pulls that off so, so well. Is there a better New York cab driver movie than this? This is the <laughs> ultimate one. Like, when I think about this film, I think, oh, that's what the Royal Tenenbaums is making fun of with the Gypsy Cab Company, which was fake, but was very much like we're seeing one cab that she's in. And I bless this cab driver who picks her up after watching her, I think, try to yeah. shoot someone. And he's like, get <laughs> I, in. I think he just sees the, yeah. the car crash because he's like, what was that crash? There's the guy who saves her who looks like Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Like, there's just yeah, huge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's, he, he's huge. And the guy, yeah, because she's threatened by a gangster who is the guy from Minia Moskowitz that she goes on the mm. date with. He just looks very yes. different. Um, yeah, he's just like, yeah, get in. And it, the cab itself is made up of 10 different cab parts. <laughs> like the hood doesn't match the like doors and it's very stereotypical, but these cabs did exist in New York. And certainly Cassavetes is taking a, um, a deliberately anti Woody Allen stance to New York. It's, it's non, non-glamorized, non-touristy. It looks like you could step on a syringe at any point. Like oh, yeah. it really, he's really, um, it's his New York. It's the, also the New York that Jenna remembers growing up in and living in when she was very young. And so she said when she was you know, trying to figure out this role, she was like, I remember I had to have a certain kind of walk when I was a New Yorker to defend myself. And that's the walk that she uses for Gloria. And, and you know, her <laughs> all of her outfits have a lot of shoulder pads. Like they really are making her look bigger than she is. And it's very effective. There is a website on a cinema blog that is specifically devoted to her costuming and her outfits, her and they call her a fashionista, yeah. and I was like, I can see it. All right, let's get into quite possibly the most controversial part of yes. this film. Cam, you have feelings about the child's performance, and so did the Razzies. So what yeah, do you think? I mean, the Razzies suck. Let me get that out of the way. <laughs> I, I don't ever want to be on the side of the Razzies. And I also don't think you can ever really fault a child with a performance. I think it's down to the director. So the first year yeah. of the Razzies, so it's a weird year. Oh, okay. Yeah, Lawrence Olivier also co-shared I mean, but it's this for, uh, for for what movie? Jazz singer, jazz I assume. Singer. Oh, the jazz the, singer. Oh, I oh, have right, no right, son. Yes. You know the <laughs> yes, classic, uh, the it, Neil yeah. Diamond jazz singer. Yeah, um, right. uh, yeah. I so I I'm glad actually you pointed out a great scene with the kid because I would agree. But I think that that scene is one of the best because he's reacting with Jenna Rowland. I think she's working with him, and I think his reactions are a lot more naturalistic i think the thing that cassavetes screws up with the the kid in this movie is he both does not write kid dialogue he writes him like he's a little walking metaphor uh which is not not natural it's not cassavetes you know (laughs) to have a kid say like goofy one-liners like this is a little gruesome and like (laughs) stuff like that (laughs) is like okay and i i think that then he also doesn't he didn't adapt his directing style to get a naturalistic performance out of a child. And I think you need to work on that. And I think it's tough. And I think he was phoning this in, honestly, is the problem. Because I just think that the kid is acting like a kid actor on Broadway or something. And it just doesn't suit it. He's like a little man. And I wonder, I, I think I agree with what you're saying. I do, Cam. Mm-hmm. But when I was kind of looking at this film the second or third time watching it, and I had the same reaction as you the first time. Um, but I was still surprised to hear that they gave the kid the Razzie. That's just, like, ridiculous and mean. That's cr- it's cruel, too. It's no. not yeah, necessary. Well, I mean, yeah. but, um, I'm sure you never even heard about it back in the day. No. He's outfitted like a little man. Like, he doesn't wear six-year-old's clothing. He's really, like, a miniaturized version of his father. He's wearing bell-bottoms, platform shoes, and this, like, very, ad- I would say, an adult-patterned shirt. Even his hair is very... Um, is very adult-like. Like, he never at any point does uh, Cassavetes give him a teddy bear, something that you would expect for a six-year-old, something that you would think Gloria, when she especially hides out in her sister's apartment, would find something to occupy the kid with, some toy, some whatever. I kind of appreciate that on the second and third viewing, where, yes, I think he's a walking metaphor. I think you're right, Cam, but there were still some lines of dialogue 
that I really appreciate where he's trying to, you know, his, his dad in the scene where he says goodbye is like, you're the man now. Don't mm-hmm. trust anyone. I mean, this all makes sense. This is cliche, but it makes sense. And then when he gets mad, he's like, I'm the man. I'm the man. Like, it, Which, yeah, that's what a six-year-old would do. I feel like that do. part is stupid. Oh, really? It's so funny because I, I actually, I'm with you, Alicia, and Cam, I do see what you're saying, but I'm with you. I think you, you guys in are the... intellectualizing this, though. You're, 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 we're <laughs> Who, working us? over time to say why. <laughs> but you're like, I'm saying it's not good, and you're like, it's not good, but when looked at it this way, like, okay. And I've also seen this multiple times and still hate the fucking kid every time. <laughs> I don't think, okay, I want to be clear. I don't think I'm going to convince you of whatever, no, but I do want to offer a point of view for our listeners is what I think I'm trying to do here is um, what I think is interesting is kind of what Alicia brought up is the fact that when he is imbued with you are the man, he's not acting like a kid anymore. He is now acting like the man and how he sees the man is supposed to act, which is why he says the things he says and acts a certain way and has that like one of my favorite lines that really made me giggle was let's get out of here now he don't know the score he sees a dame like you and a guy like me he don't know he's a kid that grew up on the front stoop and you actually see him escape there and because he's now the man, as a six-year-old, he has intellectualized that that's what being a man means. And that I find very sad. And that's why he can't process his parents' death until he's, like, falling asleep. Like, I think that's – and, like, at nighttime when he has nothing else to kind of bounce off of. I think that's really interesting I feel like you me. guys are describing what you like about the character but not the performance. Like, my problem true. is the performance. That could be it's, okay. it's a fine idea on paper to me. I just don't it just think it's work. pulled off. And this was a huge okay. casting stunt. Like, I think, I believe Cassavetes rented um, a disco or something like that and had 350 yeah. kids from the Bronx show up to audition because he wanted to see, and he took them away from their parents or something yeah, like that because he wanted to see weird. how they would act without their parents. And Did then... he have them play stickball? Is that why <laughs> I don't know. I've this heard that's kid, what you, you know. do with cats. If you go to a <laughs> if you go to a cat rescue, you should get them to have all the cats out and see what cat kind of comes up to you. And that seems like what Cassavetes did. Wow. Yeah, I um it's complicated for me. I get what you're saying. I get your accusations. I just feel like I like like how Cassavetes directs actors. And I think that that is not present here at all. Like this is somebody sticking out in a real like acting performance, which is not his deal. You know, so he'd be really good in Bugsy Malone if it had been. Sure. Yeah. Oh, totally. Yeah. (laughs) And I I will say that I'm actually kind of shocked he didn't go on to do other stuff. I don't think he's like that. You Perhaps know? he was traumatized. Yeah, this seemed very intense. I mean, <laughs> he, he has started talking about it. I mean, he's a yeah, gentleman yeah. in his um, nearing 50, I believe. Um, but he is talking about it and he has written about it. And he has, uh, I can't remember, what his, he doesn't have a career in acting, but he does have a very successful career. I'd have to look it up. I can't mm-hmm. remember. But he does kind of talk about what it was like to be, and keep in mind, he's a, he's playing six, but he's he was eight when he filmed this. Not that that makes a huge difference, but no, six and eight I don't are remember are much from eight. Yeah. But it's, six and eight are kind of different if you think yeah. back your childhood they are significantly different as a, as someone who has a small person who is now seven and was six and is about to turn sure. eight yeah. it's night and day difference yeah. in terms of development but that yeah. would have been um god that would be horrible to like because there was a lot of it's like almost like uh dear evan hansen mm. reviews where you know that one poor son of a bitch is being called a ghoul yeah. in a bunch of like yes. <laughs> headlines i mean these are at least he's an adult this at least he was yeah. an adult and he can take that criticism, I assume. Yeah. But this is a, this was an eight-year-old and his family who really, I guess, brought him to an audition but didn't have aspirations of him no. becoming, you know, an actor necessarily. Yeah. I don't think you bring your kid to a Cassavetes audition if you want him to be Shirley Temple, right? This little, this, <laughs> this actor shares an award with Laurence Olivier. True. So, Nothing I mean, he can that. say that, and that's kind of impressive. Also, when you reach a certain age, yeah, maybe you just be like, hey, send me that resume award. <laughs> I want sure. Something. Oh, my God. He also won a Stinker's Bad Movie Award, so we shouldn't just give it to the Razzies as well. Oh, no, only nominated, only nominated for It, it doesn't matter. Kids should be exempt from that stuff. It's yeah. not fair. I don't like it. I will I say like as it. much as we're talking about Cassavetes phoning the sin, and I, there is truth to that. There has to be. I was reading an interview where he talked about the ending of Gloria, um, and a lot of the criticism was that it's really, it doesn't make sense. It just isn't realistic, and I, I agree with that. Um, and yeah. it, he had intended to, it to be in black and white when Gloria and this child are reunited. 
um, which sounds way too arty to me. It is ultimately in yeah, color. Yeah, that is kind of weird. <laughs> but yeah. he said that in the end, he just felt so much for that little that little guy, mm-hmm. that character that he couldn't take away his protector. Because in reality, Gloria wasn't going to get out of that building. She's no. going to be mulled no. down. No, no in hell. She's a yeah, but she does, and it, it's we don't know how she did. She's, but they never show you how she's because pretty it's handy with that gun to. too. Uh, she's good at know. shooting. That's she, true. She's, also, she's always been in control and always screwed up over everyone who gets her. And I will say again as much as I have problems with his performance, I think his performance at the very end is tremendous because he's he undersells it so hard. He Good, just does okay. that kind of little smirk yeah. when he sees that she's still alive, which I think is very charming. I think I was just surprised that Cassavetes got as sentimental about this. Um, sure. I don't think of him as a sentimental filmmaker, and this is a surprising project for me to understand that he was like, well, I know I should end it this way, but I just can't do it to this character. I yeah. love him so much. I'm going to end it this way. Um it's a complicated film. It's a complicated cast of eddies. I feel like, I feel this weird chip on my shoulder like I'm, or an insecurity that I'm a bad Cassavetes fan because I love this film so much. Because there are conversations when you go to Cassavetes retrospectives or whatever um, that, you know, this is a lesser than Cassavetes because it's oh, commercial, Lord. because it was popular at the box office. But I really love it. I really yeah, love I, it. Yeah, I think that you should love it, number one. Number two, I think it's just a reminder that Cassavetes is kind of an asshole <laughs> and, and if anything it's yeah. a great indicator that he should have just done more one for thems you know yeah like he 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 could have been he could have been cracking off commercial stuff when he sat around instead of just drinking and being a withered we could have had more is yeah, what you're saying yeah. and, like, I totally and, there with you. and all you need to do is kind of find like gina roland find the good part of this script like the, th- the truth is he wrote a script then she saw something in it and thought yeah. it was a very interesting role and she made a lot out of it and i think he did a pretty good job of it too and it's too bad that he couldn't yeah you, you can't see the good stuff you have because you're too busy focusing on the bad stuff and we also know at one point she probably saw little miss marker and went i need to be in that sure. one way or another because i know that's what i thought when i saw John that john <laughs> renault saw this movie and said let's do it again and then Tilda Swinton saw it and said, let's do it again. And, yeah, yeah, I mean, this has been remade starring um, Sharon Stone. It's considered by Sidney Lumet. Uh, it's considered his worst film. It's kind of <laughs> shocking. Uh, but yeah, this this definitely gets translated uh, certainly to Luc Besson's... Um, the Professional. The or Professional Leon. Leon. Yeah, it is so, so similar. Um, and I grew up with that film and, you know, mm. not knowing... Uh, glory existed i kind of loved hearing that this is one of akira kurosawa's favorite films i find that interesting um and he's someone who you know has an interesting relationship of his of his own about directing children and Mm. uh yeah and also not great at it i would say true yeah (laughs) not not his forte at least there's other japanese directors oh i'm sure i think ozu Ozu is the child like ozu's the one that can do he he can kill it but but yeah no i i i can i can forgive Castavetti's, I think, not doing a good job with a kid if you don't care. Like, like if you don't care, the last thing you're going to do is find a way to adapt your very specific style of acting directing to a child. Because I think yeah. you really got to bend over backwards or you really got to search through a billion children for the perfect naturalistic acting child. Well, he was someone who directed his own kids a lot. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting, right? Even, I mean, I know the kids we're talking about in Minnie Moskowitz, the last episode, were babies, basically. Yes. But, um, you know, he's someone... <laughs> With their parents. Yeah. He certainly... This isn't his first time directing children, because even, like, a woman under the influence... Um, mm. Imagine directing kids while, you know, you have Pierre Falk hitting Jenna Rollins, and, like, they have to witness <laughs> yes. it. Like, he is used to mass chaos and anarchy with child actors. Um, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have any defense left. I like this little guy, though. I like, I don't know. I liked some of his, the scene where he gets trapped on the subway, which is one of my worst nightmares. And I have seen it happen in real life where um, a, a, someone, a, an adult tries to get their kid off the subway and the doors close between mm-hmm. them. And then I've seen they're just, yeah. they're trying to bang on the window and say, get off at the next stop. Yeah. Um, and he, of course, you can't hear, he can't hear her. And just that, that point oh god i was just panicking because you know it's much worse when the mafia is also trying to murder you yes, than when you're at spadina true. station and your six-year-old is gonna get off potentially on dupont but like it is uh yeah there's just a lot in this that i related to despite maybe that role not being very accurately performed we should probably leave it there so uh alicia once again thank you so much for being on the show and bringing your opinions so appreciate it <laughs> 
<laughs> Thank you. I think I might like children more than Cam, and I always thought it was so I, 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 like, so I like children when they do good acting jobs. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's plenty of great naturalistic child roles out there. Let's be fair. If any of us are going to be left with a child that they have to protect from the mob, it's going to be Cam. <laughs> you know that's happening. Uh, all women are mothers. That's. I'll just say that Italian guy's lying. This did um, make me want to maybe learn how to shoot for defense. Sure. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe just on the fence. Thank you, Jenna Rollins. Uh, Cameron Maitland, thank you so much for bringing your opinion. Well, thank you. Yes. Uh, like I say, that kid could have had more roles, just needed the right director. I'm there with you. He's also really just a cute little guy. Yes, so great, really great head of hair. I'm also not sure that that's not just what six year olds dress like in 1980. It's <laughs> possible, but no, there's other kids that he's with in that film and they're oh, yeah, not dressed right, like that. Right. They're wearing like cotton yeah. tank tops and like And we've got sandals. A, another young Dexter Fletcher role in Yes, Friday. Dexter yes. Fletcher from <laughs> Bugsy <dressed> Malone. <laughs> we are getting, what year is 76. Bugsy Malone and when are we getting, okay, now are we doing it on the podcast or is it ending oh up in gosh. television? Oh, that will be on the TV show. There's I'm no going to be okay, 50 by the time we're talking about Bugsy Malone. <laughs> You can join us next week where we're going to be bringing it closer to home with two Canadian films about rebels. And you'll be hearing some really bizarre stories about Buddy Hackett and Dennis Hopper. It's Hey Babe and Out of the Blue coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial free. Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite on demand. Subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cameron Maitland, and featured Cameron Maitland and Alicia Fletcher as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week. <laughs>